wanna be where the talk of the town is about last night when the sun went down. Yeah, and the trees all dance and the warm wind blows in the same old sound. And the water below gives a gift to the sky and the clouds give back every time they cry. Make the grass grow green beneath my toes and if the sun comes out. I'll paint a picture all about the colors I've been dreaming of The hours just don't seem enough to put it all together Maybe it's as strange as it seems And the trouble I find is that the trouble finds me It's a part of my mind, it begins with a dream And the feeling I get when I look and I see that this world is a puzzle Find all of the pieces and put it all together And then I'll rearrange it, I'll follow it forever And always be as strange as it seems mm -mm. Nobody ever told me not to try Because uh, we cannot be in the studio live today, because there's a lot happening this week uh, around Carnival, obviously, in the RTV studio. So um, they're building up a stage and whatever there, so we cannot be there live. But we have a very special episode today that we pre-recorded. Yes. Um, today, for the pre-recorded episode, we're actually showing, our, showing off some of the podcasts that we actually have in our SoundCloud. So take this as an invitation to go to our SoundCloud and listen to our things there. Yes. So all the podcasts that you're going to listen to are either made possible by SRM, uh, by the support of our community, um, uh, or people that are related to SRM. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so our first podcast is going to be really interesting, right? Yeah, it's a Bela's podcast. It's a new podcast. They recorded a few episodes and the first two are online right now. So you can either listen to it on Spotify or obviously in the playlist on our SoundCloud. So this is their episode, uh, their podcast, Queering the Perspective. And this, yeah, it's going to be interesting a lot of topics. You've listened to it already, Katinka, right? 
Yeah, yeah, I listened to it already. I love it. I love everything that Bela's doing and the points that they points that they are making and uh, yeah, queering up our perspective. I think that's very important. There's a lot that we can still uh, do and win in that area. And this is the second episode of their podcast. It's about bisexuality. So it's a very interesting conversation. And a little side note, because obviously we have to stick to the to the hours that we have live on the radio. We did cut some parts of the conversation out. So uh, yeah, definitely go check it out on uh, on soundcloud or spotify to hear the full episode yeah i definitely will be doing that because you know i like to hear the full conversation you know without the unabridged version you know yeah exactly but uh, yeah let's see what bela has to uh, to tell us they're doing their own introduction so we left that in in the in the episode so uh, bela can uh, take take it away for us all right hello 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 everybody and welcome back to the podcast this is bela bellissima and today i'm sitting with Noelli, <laughs> <laughs> Noelli, a good, good, good old friend from mine from Berlin, and yes, today we are here to talk a little bit about bisexuality and our personal experiences, as well as some general observation of bisexuality within the heteronormative context of the society we are currently living in. So, yeah, really curious what comes out of it. Queering the Perspective with Bela Bellissima. So, but before I start talking too much, I want... (laughs) (laughs) I would like you to introduce yourself, Noelle, if you want. So, um, I guess we already know your name. (laughs) But maybe um, tell tell us your your pronouns and then one question. So, what is the worst thing to do on a first date? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, my pronouns are she and her. And the worst thing to do on a date, I really have to think about it. I think having a bad breath. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah. And then would you be this kind of person that would give your date um, a chewing gum and be like, yeah. I, yeah, I think so. I think I would say, because I always having chewing gums with me, so I think I would say, uh, I would like to have a chewing gum, so maybe you want to have some too. So you would not explicitly say, oh, you're stinking. No. <laughs> That's like... not polite at all. <laughs> Okay, okay. I get to know. Okay, interesting. Cool. Well, then let's start. So, when we're talking about bisexuality, I guess the first thing that comes to my mind is um, how did you realize that you were bisexual? Okay, so I think it all started really early when I was maybe 10 or 11. I don't know exactly, but I think. Uh, it first started in advertisement and stuff that I saw a woman and I was like, oh, they're really pretty. And in the first place, I thought maybe I just think that women are pretty. Mm-hmm. But then I also thought that their breasts and their body looks very, very handsome. Mm-hmm. So I kind of have been attracted. Mm-hmm. But I tried to push it away from me because I thought something is wrong with me. And 
yeah, I think this is how everything started or this was the first thing how I realized it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then were you were you able to live it out? Like were you able to talk about it with your friends or with your family or how did you what happened after you had this realization? Mm -hmm. I didn't tell anyone um, until I have been maybe 15 or 16 so very long time passed by and um, yeah I didn't I didn't want to um, allow myself then I was curious actually um, wanted to ask you um, was bisexuality or let's say homosexuality ever something that you that was talked about in um, social contexts such as school when you were growing up, like in elementary school or in high school, was it ever addressed to you or in what manner was it addressed? Mm -hmm. So um, we have sex, sex education in preschool uh, and primary school. And then I never can forget the situation where I've been sitting with all the girls in class and we have been uh, talking with the female teacher and I asked her um, if she could think that I'm not I asked her uh, that I'm scared to be that I'm scared to be a scared yeah wow. that I'm scared to be a lesbian and she said you don't have to worry. I don't think that this will ever happen to you. Oh, so, <laughs> no. so, of course, I assumed even more that something could be wrong with me. Mm -hmm. um, I, and it's a really wrong way to educate kids mm -hmm. when they're like 10 or 11 or something. Yeah. As yeah. this is as homosexuality is something like a disease, right? Exactly. That somehow at some point can invade your body and your spirit. Yeah. And I know that she didn't mean that she didn't mean it like that, but still the wrong way yeah. to answer, I think. And, but yeah, I guess like, of course she, she didn't mean to be homophobic or anything, mm -hmm. but this is implicitly homophobic, right? Yes. This is an implicitly queerphobe. And this mm -hmm. is, this is, I guess, the epiphany of heteronormativity, mm -hmm. right? It's not saying that like something else is bad, or I mean, in this case, it is actually mm -hmm. saying something is bad, but it's more saying like something is better. You yeah. know, this is what we're used to. This is what's normal. And this is what is not causing you problems. Mm -hmm. How you're going to blend in society, live a happy life and live in like a heterotopia. Exactly. The easy life. Yeah. It just seemed like it didn't exist. Like exactly. Okay. Just a phase or something yeah. like that. Oh, I don't know. You know? So, and How then, many times have people told me yeah, this? Yeah, and then, you know, it always came back to me. Okay, so, yeah. I don't know how you found it out, but it would be also really interesting. Or how you manage these kind of thoughts. Mm. Well, I mean, I remember that for me, I, I also discovered my interest in male presenting persons quite early on, or if I now look at it re retrospectively. But at that time it was for me I always made up excuses you know I, mm -hmm. I always said like oh yeah I think the body is attractive because I would like to have this kind of body mm -hmm. for example yes. or I would feel I want to feel as pretty as they are and not see them for the beauty that they are 
and with the and desire and the attraction that they invoke in me, mm-hmm. but um, to sort of project my own insecurities onto them. And of course, then also, like for me at least, a big part of, uh, of it was homophobia, that I knew that for me to, to be home and homosexual would lead to a lot of super negative consequences. Mm-hmm. And especially I remember in my high school being gay or like in German, like schwul or like um, saying these kind of slur words as like schwuchte or faggot. Uh-huh. Um, was very much an insult, you know. Being gay was one of the worst things you could be. And this was in, like, you know, Kreuzberg, Berlin. Like, this was in the supposedly most, one of the most liberal parts of the world Mm -hmm. and sexually free. But, yeah, like, 10, like, 13, 14, 15-year-olds were really... Mean. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, And, I mean, I definitely even... I I was harassed even for... Um, for assume uh, assumed to be homosexual, mm-hmm. like I never had an experience with a male presenting person until I was uh, fifteen or uh, yeah, fifteen it was. But uh, it was always I remember I was always a little bit more feminine than other guys. Um, so even that, you know, people assumed my femininity to be a sign of mm-hmm. gayness. Yeah. And and even like due to that, I ran into huge problems and people were like harassing me yeah. and uh, bullying me also at times, even though only like verbally and I had very like a strong group of friends. So yeah. like it was fine. But yeah, even the assumption led to a sort of violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think also... Um, the fact that you try to push it away from you um, and just saying, yeah, I think I want to look like this person yeah. or I, I just like the appearance of this person. I think that's also something I did. Yeah. I, I was also like, oh, she's just like, she's just looking so good. <laughs> I just want to look like her. Yeah. Um, and that's why I admire her or uh-huh. something like that. And when, when did like this, uh, this shift come for you? Because mm-hmm. I guess, like, today you are quite embracing of your bisexuality yes. to some extent. But, and, and early onwards, it was not like that. So when, how was your thinking rewired, in a sense? Like, when did you... Oh, honestly. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I had this kind of experience with kissing friends of mine that has been also um female-presenting person. Um and also, like, my best friend, she um, told me about her experiences with um, women. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's where it started that I thought about it. But I think also what I, what I think directly, like, I don't have to come out. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, it's just an interest. It's just a sexual orientation. I don't have to tell everyone that I'm now bisexual you know <laughs> like yeah. for me it's not it is a thing to talk about because we are living in a heteronormative world mm-hmm. but normally I think it's it's your personal thing yeah. and you would never ask um, a heterosexual person about yeah. it and also one thing about the sexual education in preschool it's funny because they never talk about the uh, um, possibility to be in a 
gay marriage or yeah. something like that, you know? Homosexual partnership. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And I think what is also very strongly tied to this idea of heterosexuality is binary idea of gender, you mm -hmm. know, that being heterosexual implies that you are attracted to this gender that's opposite of you, which then conflates like gender and sex together mm -hmm. and conflates gender and sexual orientation into this one what like Judith Butler would call like the heterosexual matrix for mm -hmm. example that this is just a configuration that you cannot escape you know like yeah. you're assigned a certain sex at birth then you acquire this gender according to your primary sex organs and then you like persons that are opposite of this gender and the primary sex organs that you were assigned at birth. Yes. So it's also like splitting um, the world into two sides and um, then um, the people that are somewhat in the middle, somewhat gender non-conforming or trans in any kind of way are falling sort of in, in the hole. It's also interesting to me since identifying as non-binary uh, as of this summer that I realized that not conforming to the gender binary and challenging gender as a construct and challenging gender as an entity also means challenging sexual orientation mm -hmm. because sexual orientation and gender is so much connected. Yes. So I, I remember having a conversation with a friend who asked me like, what is your sexual orientation? Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, I am, um, I'm bisexual or mm -hmm. I'm pansexual. And yeah. then she was like, yeah, but I thought you're non-binary. So that mm -hmm. means you don't believe in gender. So you cannot even, you know, be okay. attracted to a gender anymore <laughs> because okay, you okay. don't believe, like, gender doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. It's, like, erased, you know? So yeah. it's more like, I'm non-binary. That's it. That's you it. Know? Okay. Like, it doesn't matter anymore. Of course, I can say, like, maybe I'm attracted to persons with beard more than persons without mm -hmm. a beard or whatever. Or I can say, like, I'm attracted to tall people or I'm attracted to blonde people or I'm attracted to uh, big ass or big <laughs> <laughs> breasts. Or big booty. <laughs> big booty, exactly. Um, but gender is not something you can be attracted to anymore, which okay. I think is very powerful because it is not, mm -hmm. you know, like you're not falling in love with a gender, but you're falling in love with a person. Yeah. So for you, your sexual orientation is just non-binary. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And um, what do you think about the fact that I would say that I'm attracted to gender still? I mean, I think as long as you're still identifying with a gender, it makes sense to mm -hmm. be also attracted to a gender, even though I would, of course, also encourage you to challenge gender yourself, you yeah. know, because I think gender in itself is oppressive to anyone, mm -hmm. you know, of course, like we're living in a patriarchal world. So um, also some males are profiting from the gender binary mm -hmm. structure, but also a lot of people, a lot of also male presenting persons are oppressed and suffer from suffer from patriarchy but um yeah <laughs> <laughs> so um maybe to come back to now we went on a little bit on, a, yeah. on an excurs yeah, um maybe to come back a little bit to to your experiences mm -hmm. um is um a bisexual woman mm -hmm. or bisexual female presenting person um 
and now being very open about it and now like living it out somewhat to an extent um what what do you struggle with most like what is what comes what is the most difficult thing for you okay so for me it's really hard to find out someone uh is bisexual or a lesbian so for me it's really hard to find that out i mean if you use dating apps it's more easy mm -hmm. to find it out and i mean that's how i had my first experience mm -hmm. um with a female presenting person um but otherwise it's like really hard <laughs> i don't know just just to check out if someone is interested or mm -hmm. gay you know like, because again we would think you know someone yeah. is heterosexual is the norm of course and no not of course but that's what we're assuming yeah. because it's still in our head yeah. <laughs> so yeah i think that's it mm -hmm. so now being bisexual very openly how do you see male presenting persons perceiving you You mean just in a, I don't know in, in which way you like for example when when you're at a bar okay so when I have a date and or when I'm with or for example when, when you're in the public yeah, yeah when I have been with my best friend and uh, we have been at the bar and she needs to save me <laughs> she needed to save me from from a dude so um, she was just kissing me to save me and then she talked with another guy and uh he assumed directly that we would be interested in having an adventure with him together Ew, really? yeah. Ew. <laughs> um oh my god just because she was kissing me so um i think it's it's a form of being sexualized mm -hmm. by a male presenting person mm -hmm. for just um being bisexual or kissing yeah a woman in public yeah. so i think yeah that's not a nice way yeah. um i don't know it's just it's just weird yeah. uh, you would never do that to someone who's yeah. just if if a female presenting person and a male presenting person would have make out you would never go there and just like <laughs> and just ask are oh, you maybe ready What for adventure the third of us you know <laughs> this is just weird yeah that's a, such a weird dynamic and yeah it's it reveals how much sexism there, there is also mm -hmm. projected onto lesbians yeah. or bisexual female presenting persons um yeah crazy so also women are a lot of times like deprived of their subjective being and instead they are made made out to be desirable for and likable for men right mm -hmm. like if we look at porn if we look or like mainstream porn mainstream porn yeah <laughs> if we look at um if we look at advertisement mm -hmm. and if and f or if you look at beauty industry or something like this it's like there's a i guess a common conception that women need women need to be pretty for men, men. like yeah. and not for themselves so I guess you know that in that sense being lesbian can be quite powerful okay or mm -hmm. because you're pretty for yourself and men are or like female presenting persons are out of the question not out of the question but it's not 
my only interest, mm-hmm. you know. Um, if there's not a male presenting person, I'm just like, okay, there, there's a wo- <laughs> woman I like yeah. too. So I don't, I don't care. I don't have to be pretty for, for a male presenting person. Yeah. No. Uh huh. And then maybe a, na- a last question that I had or a last topic I wanted to touch upon is um, when you look at queer people or when you look at um, queer spaces, for mm-hmm. example, in Berlin, where we both grew up, how do you see the role of bisexual women in queer spaces in Berlin, for example, in Berlin nightclubs? Do you see a lot of like, do you see a lot of visibility for for bisexual women among for example gay men i think there are more spaces for gay men than Uh for uh lesbian people or bisexual people i think honestly yeah Um, but that's just what i'm assuming Mm -hmm. because i don't even know if there's just uh, a club for lesbian Mm-hmm. I mean, there is the Club de Schwartz, or yeah. there are a lot of um, parties um, for gay men. Yeah. But where are the parties for lesbian? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. that's what I think it's. Yeah, it's just weird, actually. Yeah. Also, I um, need to think directly about the movies we watched mm-hmm. um, about. Um, queer people and it always has been about gays and not <laughs> about lesbian so yeah i think i don't know why it's still like that that there are more spaces mm-hmm. for um gay people than for lesbian people mm. but i think yeah i i would completely agree i think it's mm-hmm. a huge problem actually yeah. that still Queerness, you would think that queerness means uh, a fight for a sexual and gender liberation for everyone. Mm-hmm. But what I also perceive very strongly is that queerness means still um, gay men, gay cis men, mm-hmm. white gay cis men, mm-hmm. you know, that are also like masculine. And I see very little visibility for, for example, femme gay men mm-hmm. or femme non-binary people or non-binary people in general or for mm-hmm. trans women or for trans men you know it's still yeah, true. um it's still you know you think about being queer and then it is for me this not the idea that you have a bunch of like pumped up with testosterone Mm -hmm. persons running around in a club shirtless Mm -hmm. and like grinding on each other i mean i'm happy for them that they're able to like express themselves that way it was also not the case 50 years ago Mm -hmm. um but i think like while they might have a certain extent of liberation or if you look at now same-sex marriage it's still like so many other people in the spectrum of the lgbtqia plus community are like still far from being equal and far from being granted equal rights Mm -hmm. and i think there is really a lack of acknowledgement of this power dynamic within Mm -hmm. the queer community you know and there's a lot of friction yeah i'm just wondering why it is like that honestly Mm -hmm. like 
why is there more space for or just the space for yeah. a gay for a gay man yeah um, but yeah, for sure, it's it's strange that within the queer community there's there's um, definitely a dominance of white gay men mm -hmm. over all other queer people, but then for sure there's also still extremely marginalized. And I don't want to say that gay men have an easy life no, in society, not, for sure not. Like we're still heteronormative, but that's exactly why I think we should fight this fight together. Mm -hmm. You know, like I want to. You know, I want to fight for the rights of white gay people and I want white gay people to fight for my fights or mm -hmm. fight for the fights of my friends that are um, that are trans or that are person of color that are mm -hmm. trans and that are um, not gay. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, so let's hope the fights <laughs> become a little bit more intersectional in the future and um, not divide amongst each other. And I hope there are like more spaces for trans people, mm -hmm. for bisexual people, for lesbian people, and not only for gay people. Yeah. <laughs> for gay whites as well. Okay, well, let's let's finish with this hope for the future. I mean, maybe someone will listen, <laughs> whatever goddesses exist in this universe. And uh, thank you so much for talking to me, talking, being here on this podcast. I'm very, I feel very honored to have you here. Yay! And to have recorded this episode with you and to everyone that's still listening and um, was not annoyed by our <laughs> laughter. <laughs> and conversation and ranting thank you for being here thank you for listening to Queering the Perspective and I see you next time bye bye Yes, the song you are listening to right now is uh, the remix by Voila A A, that's Voila with three A's, of Hypno Love by La Piscine, or at the swimming pool, if you will.
Maastricht here at RTV Maastricht 107.5 FM. Uh, I'm Katinka here with Zaki. Hey. And we're pre-recording this show, so we already listened to an amazing episode from Bela's podcast, Querying the Perspective. And next up is actually my own podcast, The Student Life Podcast, which you can also listen to on Spotify and on the Student Radio Maastricht SoundCloud. And I have a very special guest in this episode because that was you, Zaki. Yeah, it was me. So what are we going to talk about? We're talking about ADHD, you know, a really fun little disorder that, you know, affects my life every day. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really awesome listening back to this episode as well. Uh, just as in Bela's episode, we did cut out some parts of the, the conversation. So if you want to listen to the whole conversation we had, definitely go online and check that out. Uh, but it's funny because we recorded this about 10 months ago, I think. Yeah. Like it was... It was like at the beginning, the very first lockdown, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, if you listen to this conversation, you uh, you came pretty far in the last 10 months as well. Yeah, I have. I've started getting treatment and, you know, taking meds and everything. And, you know, it's really, it's really shown a great difference. And I'm actually now at the point where I no longer apparently need therapy. Yeah. It's just now I can just handle it with my meds because I just know how to handle myself now. Rocking life. Nice. Rocking life without therapy with your ADHD. I think you're doing really awesome, Zaki. Um, yeah, let's have a flashback to uh, to you a year ago and listen to this uh, conversation from the Student Life podcast. And after this, we'll go uh, into our next hour with more podcasts from you to listen to. See, this is an example of ADHD yeah. right now. <laughs> So I'm not necessarily saying that much, but my mind is just going a billion places at once. If I would have a new brain for you, ADHD-free brain, would you take it? You are listening to the Student Life Podcast. I am Katinka van Kan, a student life coach, and in this podcast I discuss different topics and challenges around life as a student. And I do this with students, teachers, and other professionals. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Student Life Podcast. This Student Life Podcast, we will talk about a challenge and a superpower, which is studying with ADHD. With me today to talk about ADHD is Zaki. Welcome, Zaki. Hey. And before we go into today's conversation, what should we know about you? Yeah, I am studying at Conservatorium Maastricht. I am from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in the United States. And yeah, I have ADHD. All right. We're going to talk about ADHD today. What, yeah, why does this topic interest you? Obviously, you have ADHD. You also wanted to talk to me about that in the Student Life podcast. So why does it interest you so much? Um, I mean, I think that ADHD is a disorder that people often don't really understand. They often have some preconceived notions about the disorder. And, you know, I think might want to debunk those, some of those ideas that people might have about it. Yeah, because you, you already called it a disorder. People see it as a learning disability. Is it in another way also to you personally a disorder or a disability? Uh, in a sense, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what can you tell us about being a student with ADHD? Well, talk about being a student of ADHD or ADHD itself as a disorder or in everything in general. I don't know. I so um, Well, where yeah. do you want to start? Just well, inform us. 
So ADHD itself, it's short for uh, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and there are different types. Um, it used to be that there were two disorders, ADHD and ADD, and uh, nowadays people think of it as just one disorder, um, ADHD, and dim- just how how it's focused and how it is basically how different people express it. Yeah, that's basically what ADHD and and if you would describe it in the way that you're experiencing it yourself, how would you describe ADHD then? For me, I mean, it's harder for me to. For me, it's basically difficult for me to control my focus, basically. Some of you might notice that I speak quite quickly. Um, I'm used to it, luckily. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. We work together on other projects as well. (laughs) Exactly. So, yeah, for me, I often talk very quickly. It's hard for me to stay focused. Um, It's hard for me to stick to one one particular, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, uh. Uh, see, this is an example of ADHD yeah. right now. Um, it's hard for me to stick to one particular subject when a lot of times when I'm speaking, and so I often change subjects in the middle of a conversation without meaning to. Um, so that's. Do you then also lose track of what you were talking about? Oh, quite often. Yeah. Uh, I often forget what I'm doing as I'm doing it, so I often narrate to myself what I'm doing. Yeah, it's really about that focus. I mean, I have that sometimes as well, especially in busy periods in my life. Wouldn't say that that is the way I function always, but I think that's something that a lot of people can recognize as well. Um, yeah. You take it to the next level. Exactly. I think that's the thing that makes it a disorder is frequency and severity of yeah. whatever you're dealing with. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So if you look at being a student with ADHD, and in what way does that, yeah, is a part of your studies maybe getting in the way sometimes, or how does that influence your studies? Well, for one thing, uh, I am the least organized person that I know. <laughs> um, I cannot do anything that involves organizing, or, organizing or at least, you know, I can I can add to a discussion, but I cannot be the person in charge of organizing things. I have horrible, horrible time management skills, but also in some ways it can be good because like I can. There's also a certain aspect of hyperfocus. So it's like it's not that like you cannot focus, but it's just that you cannot control it. So with hyperfocus, you might get really hooked onto one particular thing that you really enjoy doing and just do that thing for hours without realizing how much time you're spending on that thing, which can be a little bit of a hindrance in academic situations. So like I said, it's a challenge, but also a superpower, because I can imagine that if you have a certain project, if it's like for your studies or maybe for something else that you're doing, and if you end up accidentally being in that hyper-focus, you can do a lot, right? Yeah, exactly. The issue is then controlling what your hyper-focus is. And yeah. if you're focusing on the right thing, if the focus is productive. So. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, it's pretty clear. So what difficulties? Let's look at the difficulties first, and then we're going to go into maybe your superpowers, because I think they're definitely there. Yeah, you already said it's hard for me to focus to plan things in life and have control over things like the hyperfocus. Is there other things where you see that ADHD is popping up maybe in a way that other people don't realize that it might be getting in your way? Yeah, well, one thing that a lot of people don't realize about about ADHD is that, you know, it's hard to control focus, but it's also to harder to control emotions. So, like a lot of times, people with ADHD do suffer from a from a lot of mood swings and things like that. Yeah. And there also is an aspect. Um, this is one thing that's very common with people with ADHD called uh, rejection sensitive dysphoria, where so let's say like. For example, in school, it's hard for me to focus on things, so I end up missing a lot of assignments. And so you end up, of course, hearing a lot of negative feedback from people because of that. And so people with ADHD tend to receive a lot more negative messaging than people who don't have it and often internalize that. And so their emotional consequence is very similar to depression, where you like internalize and like, oh, I'm not good at doing anything pretty much, which is something that I've had to work on a lot. And just realizing that, you know, 
I do have a disorder and I have to like really oft, often just literally tell myself, no, you're not stupid. You're, you're not dumb. You're just doing things differently because your brain just works differently. Yeah. Play. All right. That's good because I can imagine you're at the conservatory. So you have a lot of individual lessons as well or in like smaller groups. Yeah, exactly. And so do, do your teachers know that because you probably have conversations with your teachers or with other students about this. Do you? Uh, sometimes. So I'm just from assuming. Time to time, yeah. 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 So, do your teachers know what's going on with you? To an extent, I think. I don't talk about it that much. But I know, like, for me at least, I know that a lot of times when I'm in a situation where I have to learn, I mm-hmm. like, my brain is just used to that. So, you know, if I'm in a classroom, I'm, I'm good at sticking to a discussion where, you know, in that situation. Or if I'm, like, taking a voice lesson, I'm good at focusing on this one particular aspect. And I do sometimes interrupt teachers, which is annoying, <laughs> of course, which is something that I'm, I'm still working on. But it's also something that, like, it's very common with people with ADHD. They have difficulty not interrupting people. And and so that's something that I think I should be a little bit more vocal about. Yeah, maybe. Because yeah. I can imagine that teachers are very open to supporting you, helping you out with this. Also, what I'm wondering now is up to what point are these things maybe due to your ADHD and you can manage them? But you're also Zaki, right? You yeah, also have exactly. your own personality and the things that you do. And if I see you running around sometimes, I can really enjoy that because we also do volunteer work together. So I've known you for a little while now. It's also part of who you are. Yeah, exactly. So how do you see that? Why do you see that maybe the ADHD ends and Zaki begins or the other way around? I don't know. I think for me, I, I've always been a very creative person. Um, I have a lot of just different, different ideas about things. And I like for me, I often tend to zone out, but a lot of times... Sometimes I'm zoning out, but sometimes I'm just like focusing on the conversation and just trying to like think, okay, internalize what is happening. Let me stick fo- stay focused on this. Let me try to come up with another idea. And so I'm not necessarily saying that much, but I am. My mind is just going a billion places at once. Yeah. And so I mean, think for me, where it's me, it's like where I'm like, I don't know. That's <laughs> hmm. interesting. I don't really. Th- I or is really th- it just you? I think it might just be a part of me. Really. I mean. I think it's hard to separate necessarily the ADHD from me because it's something that I've always had. And so I think it's just at this point a part of my personality. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't have ADHD. I do have dyslexia. I see that as same thing, different disorder maybe. Yeah. But that's just also part of who you are. And and by now, you know, for me, people laugh about the spelling mistakes that I make because I know it's just who you are and it can be funny. And for you, the way that I see you sometimes, I'm like, all right, I mean, it could be ADHD, but it's also just who you are. Something that people can really enjoy. And I hope that you yourself maybe can laugh about that sometimes. <laughs> I do laugh about that. <laughs> yeah, at, right? at times, yeah. <laughs> that's very important. So what are things, because you, you just said that in Philadelphia, you saw other students with ADHD in yeah. high school, then I assume. Here at the conservatory, do you also see other students with ADHD? I know of one other student who has ADHD. Yeah. Definitely, but um, that's what he just told us about this, and he's actually made some works of art that references ADHD. Okay, yeah. oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, how, how do you see people, maybe other people with ADHD, cope with it? Um, well, I know a lot of people just get medication for it, as well as getting different therapies so that they learn how to organize. And there's something that I think is, uh, I think it's actually more common when people are diagnosed young. I was not diagnosed until I was 16 years old. Right, that was going to be my next question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so when you're diagnosed young, you know, you're often working with a social worker or a therapist yeah. and you're often get some medication. And I know a lot of the medication, like it actually does some change, some things with the, with the way your brain actually works. And so you can, it helps you like almost training you into different thought patterns and things like that. Um, Being more normal. I'm air quoting right now. Yeah. I don't agree with that term, but that's kind of the goal, right? They want you to function like, uh, if you can name it, a regular student. Yeah, but I think, I know, I, I see a lot of 
I see a lot of uh, talk online where a lot of things like autism or ADHD, which are, which do have a lot of overlaps, there there are a lot of times more issues because of the time that we're living in, where you have to work on things with a specific deadline and you have to stay very focused on this type of thing. And so, let's say a hundred years ago, where this wasn't necessarily the case, these things wouldn't necessarily be seen as necessarily as, as a disorder necessarily. Yeah, people yeah. would be happy if you could just run around and work all day. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> And that's like with me, like folk, like, like I know, with like me, I, it's very hard for me to figure out. Okay, what am I doing next? What am I doing next? What am I doing next? Where so if if someone tells me what to do, like for example, like the events that we've been planning, if someone tells me what to do, I will do that thing and then come back to you, and be like, okay, what do I do now? Yeah, so that will be a great way for you in your studies as well. If teachers would know that, or maybe university would know that, you you have to tell me what to do and then I can do it. That will be a way of other people supporting you and making yeah. you do your thing yeah, exactly. with all the energy that you have in you because obviously you have a lot of energy so you can put that to good use so in a perfect world how do you think that people with ADHD or you you yourself would function would be that's a very good question I think in a perfect world I mean I think we would be able to just help people think a bit more creatively about things because you know our brains are going a billion different places at once yeah. <laughs> so like we come up with a lot of different or weird word ideas about things and that could be a really really good positive for um people with adhd and them being successful in life in general yeah just put it to good use exactly okay so if we look at it as a superpower because i'm personally a fan of that i yeah. see you know my dyslexia like i said also as a superpower so your superpower is adhd what are things that you can do that just the normal average people cannot I don't know. I think hyperfocus can be very much as a superpower, you know, because like I think I think that might be something. Because like when I start first started playing viola, you know, I would I was always I've always been a very quick learner about things, so I'm very good at grasping concepts and just applying them very quickly. And but I also get bored very easily with things. So once I have learned something, I want to go on to the next thing immediately. <laughs> and I think that with me playing viola, I remember I would go through like the exercise book and just like, okay, I finished this page. I'm going to go to the next page. I know my teacher didn't tell me to go to the next page, but I'm just going to go to the next page because I'm bored with this and I'm just going to do something new now. <laughs> and so because of that, like I end up doing things a lot quicker than, than some other people in my classes. And so do you still have that now that you're at the conservatory? Um, in a sense, um, but not necessarily per se. That's one thing that hindrances, like, kind of hinders me. Like, it's very difficult. Like, for example, music history. It's oh, yeah. very. I, I'm very good at understanding the broad concept of things, but under like, but like remembering like specific dates and specific periods in time. That has always been a struggle of mine. Right. But for things like uh, music theory, where it's just like, okay, you have to apply this concept and just like remember, like, okay okay no don't do this don't do this do this it's almost like a puzzle for me and i like puzzles and so i just like i'm just going to do this thing now yeah awesome i think that's really great because a lot of people are actually missing that you know students that i see or talk to that's a, that's a struggle a lot of the time that people have the opposite right they say i can remember all the dates and i can remember all the names but i don't see the bigger picture if i give you a piece of music now you could probably tell me all this from this this time period where that and that would maybe happen or yeah um, more more or less yeah yeah and i think that's something in a lot of studies that is very difficult for people to see that bigger picture and not focus on all the just the things to remember yeah i think that's great superpowers what else <laughs> what else can you do i don't know thinking about i don't know thinking about things more broadly a broad understanding of things more than that i don't know i haven't really thought about that much really i haven't really i never really thought of my adhd as a superpower per se 
I think mm. it is. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's a superpower. Everything that makes you a bit different, because obviously it makes you a bit different than other students, or you know, probably growing up. Especially if you say that you only got diagnosed when you were sixteen. I think that's pretty late. Yeah, that's quite late. Especially for somebody in this time, because we're very focused on getting these things diagnosed mm. in a young age. Maybe too early. I think we're a bit too focused on that as a society. Yeah. Um, so how was th- how was that for you to have gone without being diagnosed, but these things were still going on in your head and in your behavior, right? Yeah. Well, okay. I'm going to go into my tragic backstory. Yes, now. please do. <laughs> um, so uh, when I was 15 years old, uh, I had uh, severe depression, and I actually had really had depression for years before that, but I was not diagnosed until I was 15. And on January. 2nd 2013 I actually attempted suicide which was rough um, obviously Um, but it also led to me end up being diagnosed with ADHD and I remember when I found out I had ADHD and she explained it to me I was like oh this makes so much sense Um, that was all the pieces of the puzzle (laughs) yeah because like I remember being younger and like taking hours to do my homework when it shouldn't really only took me like half an hour or 20 minutes or something like that and so things like that and like always being in class like being bored in class because like okay I understand this I don't want to focus I can't focus on this anymore because I'm, I'm already bored by this right now so did that diagnosis help you as well maybe getting out of that depression and getting out of being suicidal oh yeah definitely without a doubt yeah I mean of course I've struggled with depression depression has always been kind of there but I've also learned more how to deal with it now to cope with it but that's also the emotions that come maybe a bit extreme for you that's what i'm getting right yeah exactly so if you're happy yeah really happy (laughs) yeah exactly if i'm down it's like oh yeah but now i'm just like okay i'm not i just remember i tend to remember it's like okay i have a disorder that's probably affecting me in this way okay let me try to break myself out of this headspace now (laughs) yeah exactly other question that's in the back of my mind you have twin Yes, I do have a twin. You're part of a twin. So, <laughs> does he have ADHD as well? I th- believe so. Yes. Yeah, I'm like 99 percent sure. sure. <laughs> I, I I can't I can't remember. I remember he. I remember at one point he was hosting a therapist. And I can't remember if the therapist diagnosed him with ADHD or not. Um, <laughs> I just don't. Really, yeah, that's okay. one thing. Memory issues is also a thing that happens yeah. a lot with ADHD. And um, getting the details, uh, remember the details. Okay, well maybe ask him. I'm very curious because do you see the same behavior with your twin as well? The, and the way that you're coping with things in maybe a specific way. Yeah, exactly. Oh, definitely, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Right. I mean, we've always been very, very, very similar people in general. Yeah. Ask him. I'm very curious <laughs> if he has a diagnosis as well. So a lot of challenges around having ADHD, studying with ADHD, because obviously planning, that's something that, that's very familiar with people. Yeah. Planning is difficult for you, staying focused or if you end up in a hyper focus, maybe getting out of that and yeah, exactly. staying in the, in the real world, maybe. But also a bit of a superpower because you can be very enthusiastic. You learn things quickly. You want yeah. to learn more. And there's also like a blessing and a curse because a lot of times people get people are not diagnosed with ADHD at younger ages because they're very good in academic settings. Yeah. But then it's like things where like, oh, I cannot focus on doing homework at all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it if you have a lot of interest in a lot of things there's yeah you're you're also part of a lot of things right so there's many many things that you can learn many many opportunities as well just i can imagine that at some point it might be a bit too much so it would be good to regulate that a bit yeah exactly what do you want to share with our listeners that are also struggling with adhd or maybe now think hmm this sounds a bit familiar what will be your tips and tricks uh, tips and tricks for people with ADHD. Um, try to find a system that works. For me, Google Calendar is really, really, really yeah. useful for me with terms of like keeping things on schedule and just like remembering, okay, I have this on this day, I have this on this day and this day. Um, trying to setting up setting up a routine 
often works. Um, there's not really anything universal that I could recommend because what works for one person a lot of times does not work for yeah. another pe- person. Like for me, I know I can often watch things with, if I'm watching things on Netflix, I almost always use subtitles just because my br- my brain and my ears are not always the best of friends. <laughs> <laughs> Do they miscommunicate or how does that work? It's like, it's like, it's like, I, like, I hear, like I hear something and I'm like, what are they saying? Oh, and I don't, like my brain doesn't process it immediately. If you suffer from like executive dysfunction where you can't get things done, you know, just try to find a little trick to try just finding little tricks that work for you that those are things that really helped me just finding little tricks to get my brain to kind of do what I want it to do yeah yeah Yeah, it's really about learning how your brain functions as well like what happens what is what is happening how am I taking this information in or maybe not then stop doing it that way and find a way that that works for you and that goes I think for studying but also if you're working having a job or maybe if you want to find a job I think that applies to all different situations in your life maybe in social situations as well if it doesn't work one way talk to people and see what you can have there do you have a support system Oh, yeah, I have a bunch of friends out here who help me with me, help me with a lot of things. Yeah. yeah. Another thing I'd add: don't be afraid of medication. I know a lot of people have a lot of negative ideas of medications because a lot of times yeah. the medications used for ADHD are things like Ritalin or amphetamine, and I know people often abuse these as study drugs. But with people who have ADHD, it actually has it actually affects us differently. So like stimulants. And uh, smaller dose, they're often prescribed in smaller doses. So, like, if you're taking amphetamine, it would be like maybe uh, 15 milligrams a day, and so that would actually help us to calm down and help us fo- helps our thoughts focus a little bit more. Whereas people who use them as study drugs, they're taking them often in higher doses and they just do it to like focus on some on like writing an essay in like four hours. Getting into that hyper focus that you just have naturally. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Do you take medication? Uh, no, I'm actually waiting to see a psychiatrist so I can actually get prescribed medication. Yeah. Have you had medication before or? I had a Ritalin before, which didn't help me as much. I know that amphetamine, I'm pretty sure would work better for me. Okay. Yeah. So that's something that you're going to discover now. Yeah. And then make an appointment with the university to see how they can support you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> if I remember to. Yeah, I'll, I'll help you remember. I'll Thank send you. you a message next week. <laughs> Come. Thank <laughs> you very bean. much. I appreciate that. All right. Yeah, so a support system also very important. I think just talking to people because... A lot of the time, people get irritated about things that they don't understand. Exactly, exactly. And that's really the way I want to do this um, podcast is because, like, you know, people have these ideas in their minds of what ADHD is without necessarily understanding what it is. And I think if you understand it more, people can do more to help. Especially because it's way more complex than just you're hyperactive and you cannot focus and you cannot plan and you're always late, right? Okay, that's obviously part of it, but there's way more to it when you talk about these emotions that maybe work differently or that's also people, the way that people approach you, right? That can be maybe really heavy for you in certain situations instead of people just telling you, okay, Saki, you fucked up a bit, but can you maybe next time do this and this and that? Yeah, exactly. And also like, I know it's one thing, like a lot of times people have the idea that it's something that only affects children, but there are actually a lot of adults who have ADHD. Children grow up, right? Yeah, exactly. Children grow up. (laughs) And the idea that like children grow out of ADHD, no, they don't grow out of it. It's a thing that affects you pretty much your entire life. And a lot of times, like when you get into adulthood, it actually affects people worse because now you have all these these additional responsibilities that were taken care of by your parents. And now suddenly you can take care of nothing. Yeah, you have to do it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you move to another continent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I would have a new brain for you, ADHD free brain, would you take it or? Nah, 
nah, I am fine with me the way I am. Yeah, yeah. it's the same. I think I, I treat it the same way. Like if I could take a pill that would make me not gay, would I take that pill? No. <laughs> yeah, definitely, because it's who you are. Exactly. I'm really happy to hear that. All right, so some struggles with ADHD challenges. Let's name it that. About obviously the planning, maybe some emotional things that you have to be aware of for yourself. Yeah. Uh, and then the superpowers, obviously the hyper focus. I'm a big fan of that, and the, the ability of doing a lot of things. Yeah, creative thinking and the ability of learning a lot of things because I think that is something that can really suit you especially as a student yeah and find support talk about it exactly it's very important get rid of the the stigma I think the whole way to get rid of stigma is to talk about these things thank you Saki anything left for you to share listen to student radio Maastricht Wednesdays on RTV from 6 to 7 yes you can hear Saki talk there as well and if you're around I know we have a lot of listeners that are not living in Maastricht uh, but if you're around there's events as well and then we can see you jumping around and being (laughs) a part of everything on an event yeah pretty much yeah thank you for being here Zaki for sharing your story and um, is there maybe something online that people can really like just look up things Google Google is your friend (laughs) yeah exactly Google can be it can be your friend (laughs) if you use it the right way yeah exactly All right. well thank you for being here and um, I hope to talk to you soon and I will definitely help you remember to go to that theater at the university to get that extra support in school thank you (laughs) (laughs) thank you for listening to this episode of the student life podcast do you know another topic that you feel needs to be discussed? Or is there maybe a challenge in your student life you would like to talk about? Well, don't wait any longer and get in touch with me. You can send an email to info at vancancoaching.com or find Student Life Coaching on Instagram and Facebook. And maybe I will talk to you in the next episode of the Student Life Podcast.
RTV 107.5 FM. This is Zaki, and I'm here with Katinka. The song, Hello. yeah, the song you just listened to was "Geyser" by Mitski. One of my favorite songs about music, of all things. Yeah, and, weird thing to have yeah. a song about music on the student radio. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense right now because the first podcast we're going to listen to this in this hour is actually by a musician, Petronella Torin, who um, graduated from the student radio from not from student radio, she graduated from the Conservatorium Maastricht. Yes. And yeah, it's her podcast devoted to talking about what makes music, you know, what makes musicians make the music they do. And so, yeah, yeah she has a lot of really interesting guests. Yeah, and- I love uh, I love Petronella and everything that she's doing. She's already been a guest. Uh, she's also been a guest in one of the Student Radio Maastricht shows. It's a while ago. I think it's over a year ago, maybe. I think so. Yeah, that was a while back. Yeah, that's when she started her podcast. And um, yeah, like you said, she has a lot of awesome conversations with music masterminds. So we also put a playlist of her podcast on the SoundCloud of Student Radio Maastricht. So you can check it out there. Or you can check out her podcast on masterinmusic.com. And that's also where she puts all the information from the musicians musicians that she's talking to. So uh, go check it out. Yeah, check it out. Listen to this podcast. I just love listening to new music and yeah. and she's awesome Petronella is like the she's, funniest musician I know <laughs> she is so much fun like and just a really big positive spirit which yeah. is just fun to have around so I think you're going to really enjoy this yeah. and you can hear that spirit in the introduction of her podcast as well so, uh, so let's listen to what she has to tell us Master in music Master Master in Welcome to Master in Music, the musical podcast where I, Patronella Turin, tries to resolve the magic behind really great music. I like to invite you to a little backstage tour in some of my episodes. We will meet five very different musicians and hear some of their experience with creating fantastic music. We start the tour with the famous Ulf Wadenbrandt, a conductor both in rock and classical music. And after that, we will dive into the life of a socialist, of Professor Nils Ulner's life. And then we are going to follow by following a lecture in singing, Gunn-Britt Gustafsson. And ending up in the Swedish forest, we are going to meet the three swinging singing Hebe sisters. A sneak peek into the normal and very secretive life of musicians and their way of making music. Let me introduce you to Ulf Wadenbrandt. He went from local drum teacher to international rock conductor for the band Aria to become the principal guest conductor for the Russian Philharmonic Orchestra and the Swedish Symphony Orchestra. He is known for being a very energetic explosion on stage and you never seen a conductor headbang as he does. Let's hear what he has to say about getting a sponsor as a musician. And I also work with some kind of sponsorships with the school. Yeah. Uh, that's my work here. 
Yeah, actually, you're really good with sponsors. I saw your webpage and I was like, how many sponsors do we, this guy have? You know, I saw uh, some glass company called Seoptique. I saw a car company and percussion company. And what more? Clothes. Clothes, uh, yes, clothes. I saw. Bags when I travel. Bags. Uh, it's lots of stuff. Uh, I need to check my website. But so what, what is your best tips to get sponsors? I mean, the one million dollar question for all musicians. Okay. How do you get sponsors? Jo- I just want to correct one thing, and it's like uh, when I work here at Entry, I also work with sponsorship for the school, so we have some kind of big sponsors here. And uh, my private career as a conductor and as a musician, I have lots of sponsors also. So speak about sponsoring and musician. Uh, It's very interesting because for some of the musicians, it's not popular to have sponsor. It's little, you should just be musician and nothing else. But suffer for the art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think they are lost, but okay. <laughs> uh, the main thing is here to to build a brand, to be good, to be a good musician, to also connect with people. You need to like to connect with people, and and uh, it's it, it, everything is is connected. You know, when I do concert, and so I just don't do it on stage i speak to people i speak to audience i'm very it's it's also a part of the work to 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 do other stuff than just standing on the stage and for you're me, really active on the stage you're jumping you're running around yeah you're headbanging. i have some maybe some illness i don't know i can't stand still <laughs> but but mainly about if you go to the yeah so yeah the thing is sponsorship you need to have to work with connections everything is connected you, you need to be to work with a brand to make a strong brand whatever you are whatever you're working with you need to have some brand that people want to connect with something that yeah is interesting uh, for the for the company uh, to get something back because they don't just give things away you need to have a win-win or yeah, have a win-win or have some interesting you can give them or be con- connected uh, with some special thing. And I, can you give? I, I they are very recognizable on every photos in media, in papers, in videos, in pods. If we take photos, yeah. uh, and you really need to use glasses. Right? Yeah, I can't musicians. live without them nowadays. I can start yeah. to get older, so I need it. Uh, and and that's an, a natural connection. For example, or, or or percussion instrument, I just use that percussion instrument or or clothes on stage. My suit is best, and it's it's a brand that I always use, and it's on uh, people see it on, on pictures and so on. So so it needs to be natural. It needs to be. Yeah, I like to work with it. Some people don't like to work with it, but I really love to have this. It's a part of my work, not just to be a musician or conductor. It's to to connect with people, and all this together is is making this work very interesting. And it is really important. I mean, for me, it's, at least it's very important what I'm wearing, especially like as a chalice, you don't want to have a too short skirt or you don't want to, you want to be comfortable, yeah. but at the same time, you have to look good. And very often in a symphony orchestra, you have to have black clothes, for example, because yeah. then the lighting is, is more uh, effective on your face. And it is a challenge to make a lot of people fit into the same clothes, actually. Yeah, yeah it's big. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you should be feel comfortable and all this kind of stuff. But yeah. I I just like to work with this, and I think you need to. So when you start a sponsorship, do you call them or do they call you? It's or? it's, it's differently. Uh, some it's differently. It's really differently. Uh, mostly they come to me, but in some cases I also connect with them because I think it's a good uh, win-win situation. And nowadays, for me, it's in the in the start of the career, it was of course hard get this connection, but now it's 
everything is running. But you need to keep it. It's like a marriage. Marriage, you know. Yeah. You need to 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 make it grow and make it good all the time. You can't just get things and then drop yeah. uh, the source you got the thing from. You need to always to. It's like to have a good marriage. I want to say is to give something back. Be interested in what they developing, and they need to be interested in what we do and and do it like teamwork. Yeah. So you seek sponsorship also while you with something that you like. Yeah, I don't go for cigarettes or some <laughs> stuff that I don't use. You, you you need also to be comfortable. You don't. In my case, I don't know how to do it, but I I I go for things that I like and of course I need. Thank you, Ulf. Now we are going to hear a clip from my personal shallow hero, professor and solo solist Nils Ulner. He has been a principal cellist for over 34 years in the Malmö Symphony Orchestra in Sweden. And he is known for educating some of the finest cellists at the National Academy of Denmark. Now we're going to dive into a part where I try to find out how to win a job in an orchestra and what makes a good team. You have to uh, create a culture also between the Shelley section, I guess. Yeah. And keep, uh, you should be a team. You, yeah. you, you cannot be a team if you don't know each other. Mm. How do you create a team as a, a solo solist with the other Shelleys? Like? I, I don't think it, 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 you should not think uh, like, well, I'm used to thinking more like a team that, that, uh, that we, of course, there's one who should play the solos, but 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 what we do is actually the same, and we should we should not wait if if people wait for for the solo player to to be together, they then like, they are waiting yeah. too long. <laughs> Everybody should know when to play, so it's actually not so big difference between being number one or being number three or five. Uh, it's it's of course the the case that you have to. To jump between playing tutti and playing solo, that is really the the big issue, and that's not so easy. And but Do it you have gets a good trick for that. It, it gets easier with the years because you actually get your experience. That okay, last time it went okay, so why shouldn't it be able? Why, sh- why shouldn't it be possible this time too? I mean, <laughs> it's a it's a very simple uh, psychology, but it it is. I think it must be the 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 reason why it's possible to be still a principal cellist, cellist like I am after 34 years. Yeah. So how do you change between tutti playing and solo playing? Like, do you have a trick or is it just like... Yeah, well, the trick is that you have to really join the group when you are finished uh, with a solo and, and, and it, you have to be interested to do so. You have to think that this is uh, a challenge that you want to take uh, because it's not easy and i have seen uh, colleagues who are who are not in my orchestra but in other orchestras i'm sure it's it's it is most most likely to happen that that a very good solo player is playing too much solo and Mm. and is actually not joining the group enough in between the solos if you know what i mean I, I will not go into this because it sounds like if, if I'm trying to <laughs> pinpoint some per- persons, uh, it's more a theoretical uh, yeah. aspect. 
I think it's also the same with um, with chamber music and other things that you have to try to blend in, and that's difficult. I mean, also when people apply for the orchestra job, a lot of them are very great players, but when you choose someone, I guess you choose someone who can fit into the group. Or how does it? How does an audition work? Because you sit in the jury when you choose a, a new colleague. Mm -hmm. and what do you look for, and what do you listen for? We listen for everything. We we want. <laughs> it's really a luxury to be be able to choose between such fantastic players, young players that that are applying the jobs now. I mean, every every um, free seat is. Uh, I mean, free. Uh, open place seat, yeah. open seat in the orchestra is is announced on what we call. Uh, Musical, musical chairs, chairs. Yeah. and it, so everybody in the whole world can on the internet they can see well now there's a a, a job as a who knows a violinist in in the Malmö Symphony Orchestra and and there will be maybe a hundred applicants on the day yeah. for for yeah well a tutti violin it can happen like this it's really fantastic and it's fantastic. but and when when we have to choose between them <laughs> we like to have one who is able to play with big uh, self-confidence and uh, a soloist uh, qualities but we also want some somebody who can uh, listen to colleagues in a chamber or chamber music setting so we often make a yeah for instance a quartet trial so they part of the the audition is a chamber music trial or chamber music situation and 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 then it's actually done so that you can you can from the hall from the jury it can be commented would you please do it again and try to think like this or that i mean it's it's a matter of flexibility and if you have this possibility of playing like a very big high standard on the soloist soloistic part and also being able to to do the chamber music convincingly then you are maybe allowed to the to start the right and and the the real difficult part which is the probation time and here you should you are up against a, a lot of challenges because you should be able to play the the parts uh, with not so much uh, time you you must be well prepared you must be flexible also here you must be a good colleague and <laughs> there are many practical aspects also i mean if you are not for young players there are rules that 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 they must know the hard way you cannot write your fingerings in the parts because it's uh, maybe not the same fingerings that your mm. stand partner uses one of the taboos that's a taboo well that's a, a rule that you must know you cannot uh, change the the page uh, turn the page too late or too soon or you know practical small it sounds like small things but it really feels like the same as if you are a co-pilot in a, in a cockpit i mean if you don't do things wrong it can be fatal it, mm. it is the same feeling in, yeah. in 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 the difficult passages of course there, nobody will die but but uh, we are feeling the same <laughs> we are feeling the same resp responsibility yeah. i think mm -hmm. because i know you were my teacher so i know that you've been teaching a lot of people and succeeding with getting a lot of your pupils into the orchestra mm -hmm. and even other instrumentalists come to you they're double basses violinists everyone comes to you when they are going for audition Mm -hmm. because you are the master of auditioning so give us your your tips because you're really good at getting people into the orchestra well I, I, 
that, that is a very, <laughs> very high rated, overrated. No, Niels, uh, you, you know it's true. Like, no, but I mean, it's so difficult to, to have, to, to put your students into the orchestras now. I'm uh, just happy that it happened a few times. <laughs> we mm. were opening the champagne because mm. yeah. we were on the masterclass. And yeah. People call you and say, well, I want the job. Yeah, that's true. And sometimes you got two of them into the same uh, mm. orchestra at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. I cannot say how the recipe is because uh, it's a matter of, I think if, if anything, you have to, to, work by the example i mean you have to show yourself that you respect your colleagues in order to convey it to your students i mean it's 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 nothing that you can say that you should do like this i think the best way to teach things like like this is with the attitude is to to have the, the right one yourself Thank you, Niels. Now we're going to take a trip into the deep forest of Sweden to a magical meadow where the singing lector Gunn-Britt Gustafsson lives. She is a singing lector at the Royal Academy in Stockholm and a widespread singing profile in Sweden, known for her fantastic, powerful voice. We talk on our best Swinglish about the importance of simplicity and being natural and the importance of breathing. So many people have asked me, couldn't you write a book about your methods? And I think I don't have any. So I, I named it Natural singing mm -hmm. and i haven't written it yet it's just coming <laughs> no <laughs> i'm doing so many other things now um so i said just breathe in then breathe out and make it noise that's mm -hmm. my basic thing don't overdo it it's it's not so hard just breathe in and then sing yeah but as you said, so many, and especially those who have studied for a long time, they they think, oh, no, that couldn't be that easy. So if I have had, we say, from 100 students, when I say that this to them, they want to change the, the teacher because they think it should be harder. Yeah. No, it isn't. But it's really hard to just breathe in and just sing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But we have some like really famous singers in, in Sweden, actually one that you were compared to a lot, uh, Tommy Sjöberg, mm. who is one of the person who actually didn't take a lot of singing lessons. No. Like he, he said, no, I don't need it because, you know, I um, breathe and I sing. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so it's one of the oldest like uh, teaching books in the world. Yeah. <laughs> I breathe and I sing. Yeah. But uh, it's, the, it's, it's really the art of doing something simple. Mm -hmm. It's like I always say to my cello students that cello playing is the art of relaxation. Mm -hmm. Because the more you relax, the better it gets. But our brain wants to like, oh, I have to exercise. I have to do a force because if I do it like, if I want something, I have to tense. Mm -hmm. I have to use physical muscles, but this total opposite. Mm -hmm. So when they really want to play well, they have to be like, ah. Oh, I really want to play well, like relax super much. <laughs> yeah. And it's super hard. Like yes. every time they have a problem with something like, oh, Patrona, it's hard. I cannot do it. And I'm like, relax. Mm. <laughs> and they're like, oh, it works. And they're like, oh, damn it. Yeah. Go. And I suppose that you also say, 
breathe yeah. when you take exactly actually when i applied for the music conservatorium a long time ago i uh, actually didn't enter in gothenburg in the university because the shadow teacher there he said i don't breathe when i play and he said it was very uncharming <laughs> so he didn't accept me into this uh, to the um, to the school and he said that i have to play shallow more like i'm lying in this you know this kind of um, when you have a summer house, you have this kind of yeah. fabric between the trees that you're lying. Mm -hmm. It's called a swing mat or something. Mm -hmm. yeah, if I direct translate it to Swedish, you know, <laughs> Swedish. but <laughs> probably my boyfriend would say something else. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you get the picture. Yes. Uh, and I, I was like, what the fuck is this? You know, I couldn't understand what he was saying. And I was like, how can you decline someone alive with music because of this? But then I'm like, now when I'm older and wiser, I'm like, you were so right. <laughs> mm, yeah. You understand, you were right. They yeah. give you right. Thank you, Gunbrit. To end the episode, we're going to take a tour into the swinging, singing, heavy sisters life and dive into the Swedish trio that have taken the swing music to a new international level. We talk with Josephine, Maria and Emily Hebbe about their benefits of having parents that are musicians and how their musical journey began. the music so we are so grateful that our parents understand that we want to work with music and try this and, and both mom and dad has always tried to focus on the possibilities so i i think that makes it easier for us to really believe that we can do this and also what was the other thing i was thinking about they also have a lot of contacts of course yeah. and since we were very young we started performing together with them on stage yeah. because we felt like oh it seems to be fun up there it was like a play <laughs> yeah so uh thanks to them we've had the chance to be on stage at a lot since very young age mm. and to get that experience and to be like in the 15 the year of 15 we had been on stage and do, done hundreds of concerts and mm. that's not uh, that's not everyone that gets that possibility so that's to awesome. get the routine and the experience to yeah and so i think the singing just started with mom playing the piano playing like kids songs and then playing the melody and we were singing and our parents are not singers they they can sing i think but they are not <laughs> they haven't no. been singing at home for us no. so she just played and we were singing dancing and then yeah we were on stage with them and people liked it and and when we grew older, we also wanted to challenge ourselves more and mm. to bring in more harmony singing. And uh, since I'm the oldest and I've always been very interested in uh, arranging music or like listening to music. Well, what is that chord? And mm. I was been listening very careful to carefully to music. So when I was singing in the choir in school, I brought the, the sheet music back home yeah. and like, oh, let's try this with the sisters and see yeah. what it will sound like. And maybe I rearranged it for three voices if 
the arrangement was for four or five voices. And I also started uh, listening to the Andrew Sisters, for example, mm-hmm. that is a famous swing and jazz group from the 30s, 40s, in, and learn how to arrange music in their style and to learn that jazz singing vocabulary. That's really helped me a lot when I'm now arranging, doing my own arrangements from yeah. scratch. And uh, to listening so, to others and kind mm-hmm. of trying to uh, find the recipe is like really mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. And I guess like growing up, you had to go to concerts because your parents mm-hmm. were playing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So maybe that also like inspires you because you were really like in 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 the concert place and in the concert halls listening. And when mm-hmm. they were repeating at home, and I guess they brought to home other musicians as well yes, exactly. to practice. So it was like always exposure. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a very important thing that you're mentioning now, because all that you said has had a, a huge impact on us. And uh, our parents always brought us to all kinds of cultural ex- activities. It could be opera or symphony orchestra, but also a pop concert or a ballet or. Yeah. And I remember dad brought me to, I think it was Denmark. I think I was only like five years old to Rostropovich. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the famous challenge. <laughs> and for me, like when I was five, I was, oh, I was so bored (laughs) it's hard to say now but he yeah so uh, already then i was exposed to great classical music but i didn't understand it then but now when i see the picture with me in with like hugging rostropovich it's like wow (laughs) yes that's really cool yeah Thank you for listening. I hope that we have triggered some curiosity in you and that you would like to hear the full episodes. In that case, you can go to Spotify or iTunes or Acast or any other podcast platform and you will find the full episodes with every single person of this episode. And if you're a little bit old school, you can also find the episodes and download them on mastermusic.com. I wish you happy listening. That was fun to listen to. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, now we're moving on to another podcast, which is called The Shady Music Market. Yeah. I'm so excited about this one. It's made uh, possible by Mart and Uga. So they approached uh, Student Radio Maastricht a few months ago uh, with the idea of starting a podcast about underground music. Which I love, ultimately. Of course. I mean, there's nothing better than the underground. And so... They're talking a lot about one particular band, the Death Grips. Yeah, Not so that's Death our Grips, first, uh, the first episode that they released. So again, you can listen to it on Spotify, but it's also in a playlist on uh, the Student Radio Maastricht SoundCloud. This was their first episode, so the whole conversation is about 50 minutes, and they talk about everything, really. They talk about the music, the band, some background information of the band, the fan base, different albums. Um, yeah, and you know this band as well, right, Zuki? I know a little bit of them. I actually saw them live once at Afropunk 2015, which was great. Really energetic. Like, it's one of those shows, because of the music, it's so intense. You get people who are really into hip-hop because it is technically hip-hop. But then you also get people who are into, like, really hardcore punk because it's really aggressive music, yeah. as you will hear after the show. We're going to actually play a song of theirs afterwards. Yeah, we're going to play the song Hacker by from their first album, The Money Store. So, yeah. 
Yeah, so have fun listening. You will hear the first, it's about 15, 17 minutes of the podcast. And then we uh, tune out into this uh, song, Hacker, from the Money Store album that they talk about. And for the rest of the episode, go check out all the channels and, uh, and listen to them. And stay tuned because the guys are recording more episodes about different bands, different music genres, anything underground that is still out there for us to discover. So I'm super excited for the next episode as well. Yeah, exactly. Don't forget, guys, come to our SoundCloud if you really want to hear everything come to the SoundCloud. That's really where the best, the best content lives. Where the magic happens. <laughs> exactly. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Uga. My name is Mart. We are just two Latvian dudes living in the Netherlands, studying our own things. But the one thing that we have in common is we love to talk a lot about weird underground music. That's why we want to welcome you to the Shady Music Market. Welcome, uh, welcome to the first, park, first podcast, already the first stutter of the podcast. <laughs> Off to a successful start. Yeah, three seconds in. <laughs> I think, um, what are we calling it? Are we calling it the underground music market, the shady music market, or, or, or subterranean? Uh, I think the shady, I, I like the shady music market. The, shady the more music I think market. about it, the better it sounds. Because it's like basically us trying to sell you really weird music. It's like, yeah. you come up to like... Um, this market and there's this dude in a coat like opens and it's just yeah. CDs of different artists. <laughs> I That's think us. like we're the guys in the party who are like really sketchy and then like <laughs> <laughs> you listen to Death Crips. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Death Crips for a first episode. I feel like it's um, I feel like Death Crips perfectly encapsulates what we want people to listen to. Yeah, I feel like like how I found about Death Crips is um, I think Anthony Fantano to be honest. Yeah, fair enough. I think Anthony Fantano, and then at first I hated it because I found it through Anthony Fantano. <laughs> like, don't get me wrong, I love the Melon Man. I love, like, his reviews, but, like, I feel like, you know, it's kind of like a... Unless I stumble upon it myself, I don't feel like I'll like it. Yeah, I know. It feels like a bit less authentic when yeah. you know, someone recommends you. But then what happened is uh, later on I just basically discovered it myself, and it sounded... <laughs> really weird to say the least. I feel like that's the mildest way you can put yeah. any Death Grip song. And then over time, it kind of grew on me. And I think it was one of the gateways that that led me to look for more weird music. Well, that's that's pretty good. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's that symbolic for me. I know I, I also found it through like uh, Anthony Fantano, but through JPEG Mafia because uh, mm. I, when I like started getting into JPEG Mafia, I wanted to look for like a bit more similar artists. And then I found uh, Death Crips, and yeah, obviously at first I was also like really put off by them, just like weird, creepy music. Don't <laughs> like it. Uh, but yeah, the more I listened to it, the more I like got got gotten like into them. Um, yeah, they just seem super interesting, and like yeah. they're one of those bands that like the more you the more you listen, the more you get out of them, yeah. which is super cool. So who are Death Crips? How should we how should we introduce the group? Um, yeah, it's basically three guys, three guys. Do you want to talk about them? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's basically, it's 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 three dudes, basically a drummer, a keyboardist, vocalist. I think we'll go into the names later. I think yeah. it's not as important right now. Um, but basically, they they each do their own thing. Um, they And then the music is just, kind of, just kind of comes together. And it's really tough to, it's really tough to uh, categorize it, I think. I think one of the great things about it is that it's really tough to categorize, and I'll go into it later. But it... In, um, 
is usually called like experimental hip hop or 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 industrial hip hop or something like punk or metal, but it doesn't fit into those genres. Yes. As I said, like as you've heard me say before, that basically if you wanted to describe it, it sounds like a homeless man screaming at an electric power plant. And even though it sounds really crude and even interesting and weird, you're like, why would I want to listen to it? But it makes sense. And it's also really, it's so weird that it's interesting. Yeah. I feel like they're very, like, genre-defining. Yeah. Because of, like, you can't really place them anywhere. You know, they, they don't really fit into any genre. And that's what makes them also so interesting. Yeah. But then I feel like to get to them, I feel like you can't just listen to this and be like, okay, I know I'm ready to listen to some Death Crips. I, yeah. feel like, I feel like they're, like, as weird as it sounds, and I feel like as pretentious as some people might interpret it, I feel like there is this stairway you can take so that when you actually listen to them, right, when you actually decide like, oh yeah, I want to listen to them now, you're, you've gotten you've gotten like a bit accustomed more to the style and uh, and not the, really the influences, but like the different things that I listen to. Yeah, well, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, they have some more hardcore stuff and more like more or less hardcore stuff. Yeah, but what would be the main artists that that uh, that I think? What would be the artists that you would go to if you had to like be like, okay, I want to listen to Death Corps, but I want to get it more. Like the gateway artists. Yeah, yeah, basically. They're like weed, but for music. It's <laughs> <laughs> JPEG Mafia, basically. <laughs> JPEG Mafia is definitely a good one. But yeah, also, um, Brockhampton is one. And obviously, Brockhampton is also like a very diverse artist, but they have some like, uh, especially I think for the like first saturation album, they have some more industrial songs. Which uh, which could be like a gateway to death groups. Yeah, uh, yeah. The yeah, more I have. talk about it, the more it sounds like drugs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, but it kind of fits the shady music market, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> Every artist is a bit of a different thing. This is like, just a code. We're just like launching our drug podcast. If you listen to too much death groups, you just feel like shit for the next two weeks. You yeah. have a really horrible come down. <laughs> <laughs> you could overdose on death groups. <laughs> Actually, you probably you could. could. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but basically. Um, yeah, Brockhampton, and even in a weird sense, and I'll go into it, um, Death Grips even is appealing to a lot of metal yeah. uh, um, artists, uh, or metal fans, rather, and then I feel like it has elements of rock, in a sense, or it has, like, the, the, the themes that rock and punk and, and metal cover. They have, definitely, the themes, and, uh, well, there's this, like, you know, this, this vibe of anger and this, like, negativity, which sort of reminds of metal and, and, like, punk music. But they also have, like, guitars in a lot of their songs and, like, very, like, overdriven guitars, which also, like, a bit flashbacks to metal. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, I like, like, when it comes to, like, why I think of Death Crips is amazing, one of the things that uh, really comes to mind and it captivates me is that they're not really conventional when it comes to, like, making music now when i say that i think that i'm not making this i'm not saying what a lot of the fans do which is overhyped efforts and say they're basically like revolutionizing music and creating this whole new genre or this whole new way to make music i don't i don't think that at all but i will say that one of the things is that they don't really focus on melody there isn't really a big focus on melody in their music it's really like an afterthought it sometimes come in comes in and sometimes doesn't and 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 the main focus that you see on the group, which I don't think a lot of like mainstream hip hop bands, or actually they do, but like what I think they do and they take it to a next level is just focusing on rhythm itself. Yeah, that's fair. and the feeling, even the vocals, everything is very rhythmic, and 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 that's where the insanity of like this drummer Zach Hill, 
yeah. who has had a lot of successful projects otherwise comes in it's really complicated rhythms they're like really syncopated and there's a lot like you could you could try to find theory behind the rhythms meanwhile if you wanted to find like harmonic theory if you wanted to like analyze the melodies you would find nothing zero and 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 i think that's where i have another thing where um i think that in that sense of of focusing on rhythm only in a sense and then giving everything as an afterthought they did exactly what tom york did there's this famous quote he has when he made the kid a yeah um where he said that basically i don't want nothing all I want is rhythm. That's the famous quote when he made Kid A. And then in this really, really weird sense, you can even draw parallels between Kid A, which from Radiohead, which is the furthest thing from Death Grips that I can imagine. Yeah, this is a very strong pitch. With, with Death Grips itself. And like certain tracks like um, sound like Idiotique, Idiotech, I, don't, I can always mispronounce that one, from, from uh, the Kid A, the national anthem, and even like the, the album single, like Kid A. Because it's really heavy and it's really heavy rhythm. It's like the vocals are like mismatched. There's a lot of things that like, you know, don't seem to make sense and are very like stripped. It's like yeah. a bare bone. If if uh, Death Grips was stripped to its bare bones, you could draw a lot of parallels with. Radiohead. I get it, man. I, I really get. It. I also think you know some like um, time differences play in hand because mm-hmm. like Kid A was which year album? Oh, uh, very early two thousands, I think. Yeah. And yeah, and it's also like I think kind of progressive for for its time. And then like ten or fifteen years later, ten years later, Death Grips come into hand. But yeah, I think it's like a general, a general like um, premise for for like music that rhythm is like the the power behind it all, you know. Um, and especially like in a bit more ex- experimental music, it can often be the one that like um, you know accents the music more. Yeah, and Death Grips so, does it on crack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're like one thousand yeah. percent. Yeah. What do you? What is? But, what is something that always comes to mind when you think of Death Crips? Like, what is something that is always will like be like, wow. I, I mean, they're just like I. I think the most the hardest thing to describe about them is like the vibe they incorporate with everything they do. It's not only the music; it's also the videos and the concerts and like the stuff they do on their own. That's the the whole like vibe in general. Vibe in general. It makes like the music also seem more authentic. And and yeah, about like the the individual artists themselves. Zach Hill, I read somewhere online that like he was uh, homeless at the time they like recorded their first album because he like came back from Japan and his uh, his apartment was sold out, and so he spent like a month or something being on the streets and like <laughs> really yeah and playing drums when like recording it was ex-military I think, and then oh. supposedly shooting some drugs as well. And uh, and yeah, there's this like a couple of interesting stories about those artists, and then there's nothing about them. They're so secretive. They're like the 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 what was the third guy's name? Andy Morin. Yep. Like there's literally nothing about him online. He's like non-public. Now I kind of feel bad about the the homeless description. <laughs> one of them was literally homeless. Yeah, I was waiting to tell that. <laughs> <laughs> You've just been saving that one. It's like yeah. oh. <laughs> Cancelled. <laughs> Cancelled on the first episode. Fifteen minutes in or whatever and we're already like No, I think it makes it even more appropriate, you know, <laughs> to have the homeless background. <laughs> yeah. And also like MC Ride, I think he said it in an interview once that he was like he hates well not hate, but he dislikes like the public and modern media and he has no interest in like putting his life out there whatsoever. So yeah, it's also like some mystery behind it all. They also add to this like dark anarchist weird vibe of what is death grips. Yeah, but on another thing that like 
I feel like it makes it different from like these same ideas of what I think a lot of like punk and metal bands, um, and 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 even there's the genre which is an overlap between punk and metal, which I think Death Grips might draw inspiration from. It's called um, crust punk or metal punk. I don't know why crusts. Crust is not a good description for genre. Like I would never describe anything as crust. No, it might be crusty. <laughs> crusty. <laughs> I mean, it kind of. If you put punk and metal together, I could imagine crusty is a sound that comes at one point. It's like croissants, the first thing oh, yeah, that yeah. comes. <laughs> but uh, but I think um, I think the anger that you can see in Death Grips and like it's unlike um, unlike these metal and punk bands or crust punk apparently. Um, they have a specific theme. Their anger is directed at something. It's usually like um, anger against authority. Again, anger against like society structures and like the buildup and everything else. Yeah. There is a direction and it's clear. While with with death groups, you don't really understand most of the time. They're just what. angry. <laughs> <laughs> you don't understand what they're angry about. And then the idea of the homeless man makes even more sense. Is this directionless anger? It's just this like really really powerful rage that has no aim it's just there to exist and i think that's what that differentiates them in just like in a symbolic manner from a lot of these punk and metal bands they don't say like oh yeah they're not they're raging against the machine basically yeah they're not we're not they're not saying like we are anti-authority we're, we're anarchists for anti-authority because of these and these reasons they're just yeah you know, just yeah i'm just angry I, th- I think in some sense they're like more nihilistic about this because they're like they, they don't protest against anything in in like specific they're just like against everything and and i think you can sort of sense that in uh a lot of the things they like did in their in their career for example about like uh do you know the story about like the no love deep web and how it was published so it was like they they uh they put out the money store right which yeah. was like their most successful album the magnum opus the magnum opus exactly <laughs> and uh they had like a, a deal with their record label that they're gonna put out another album that year and um, and they promised their fans as well. And what the record label did, they just like uh, noped them and pushed the album back to the next year so they can make a tour. And what they did, they just like uh, they canceled the tour on themselves. Uh, they spent like a month in a hotel room. Uh, there was Zach Hill and MC Ride developing the album, uh, and then they like leaked it out on BitTorrent, and that's why like their label dropped them, and oh, they didn't have the label. Right I actually afterwards. do think that I've heard about this. I didn't, didn't they even have like a partnership with UTorrent or BitTorrent or something? Didn't they even agree with the the actual organization sure itself that, that it's on the title line? But I'm not sure about that. But yeah, I, I, I think I've I think I've read that somewhere. But I've I've heard it. But also that is <laughs> that is basically essentially what Death Grip stands for. So yeah, fuck you. Basically, yeah, exactly. They're just doing their own thing. I love that. It's also like the the. The artwork for No Love Death, that were like uh, with the with the dick, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they tell that they also like it's Zach Hill's penis uh, in the in <laughs> in the hotel room, and it was like a super bougie hotel room. I think the like mentality behind it is like they wanted to get more in the mindset of like uh, of like the um, the record label and the higher ups mm-hmm. because they have like a little like a poor background, and they literally like I think it's so ironic as well. You just like rent a really high-end hotel room and then make an artwork which is literally a picture of your dick and, and just make it just it's just a high-class dick pic yeah it, <laughs> it literally is <laughs> much value to that dick pic the upper classes <laughs> <laughs> oh yes this is what the upper classes must do <laughs> in their free time yeah um yeah and and i think that another thing that uh that i i've come to the conclusion especially when listening to ex-military and 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 um, which is their first like mixtape it's not even really an album i think it's more of a mixtape yeah and and even money store is that they're not really songwriters 
per se, in a sense. Um, they're three dudes who who each make their own part of the song, contribute what they can, and then it's just mixed to make it work. It's 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 the sense of there's a sense of independence from each of the elements. So basically, the vocals, the drums, or the rhythm section, and all the ambient noises and the synthesizers and the keyboards, where that it's it's it feels crude. It feels like instead of being written to match, it's written to be its own thing, and then it's just forced and bent into shape so that it just somehow works. Yeah, fair it, it does. It does. It isn't written. Synchronous. It isn't like okay, I, we have a chorus or like we have like this chord structure. What's a melody that goes with a chord structure? What's a rhythm that like accentuates this chord structure? With Death Grips, it's none of that. It's yeah. basically, yeah, I wrote this, I wrote this, I wrote that. Yeah, that's true. They're very like DIY artists. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> DIY. That's the genre. DIY <laughs> industrial. <laughs> DIY industrial. That might as well be it. Yeah, but I, I heard that in like a, in a YouTube video that they call them like DIY artists because they started out without a record label and just like being on themselves and like making everything. And I think X Military was also before they had a record label. Yeah. And yeah, I think that also incorporates the the vibe. You know, that they, they like they don't go through any you know recipe of how to make a song of like they don't have any structure. Just just doing what they want. Yeah, and cool. and and I think com- coming to the back to the genre because I think you did say that like it's really difficult to place, yeah, where they stand in the current music thing, and I think we've talked about it a lot already, like how how you can't really pinpoint what it is, but it's 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 really it it just it really is a defining feature of Death Grips that it's insanely difficult to place any label on it. Like I keep scratching my head thinking of a category, but I can't really come up with anything, and that's like, um. Beautiful in a sense, I think. I think it's it's wonderful and it's really interesting that music can be so specific, so individual, and 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 seem like it might have specific elements, but it clearly doesn't. Hey, no ins and outs. You come out, your shit is gone. Bitch. Going back to Sam's year with some guns and a spear. Post Christmas shit, post chicken of the egg and dicks and shit. Yeah. 
Cemetery laps to raise it. Got the DNA of gothic lemon. Shining 13 times out of 11. Your bad ideas are the ATM. Shed my skin. Leave it for the homies who's sleeping. Prodigal, fuck that nautical. Teaching bitches how to swim. I'm in. Energetic song. Welcome back. You're still listening to Studio Radio Master here at RTV Master 107.5 FM. A pre-recorded show today, but uh, I'm still here in Katinka with Saki. Hey, hey, hey. And uh, yeah, we're going towards the end of this show with the last podcast that we want to uh, introduce, which is the podcast from Mares, right? Yes, Training the Senses. Yeah. And they have a whole, like... A series of events there and you actually participated in this podcast yeah so i was there at the recording you did the editing yeah exactly rest, so uh, another collaboration of katinka and zaki uh, it was really awesome conversation um yeah we're not gonna tell too much about it because uh, the introduction of the project and this podcast is in the recording as well uh, again it's a it's a small part from the whole conversation i think how long is the whole episode oh the whole episode's about 42 minutes i think yeah something like that so it's on our soundcloud you can check it out there there's more coming uh, it's an ongoing project that Maras ha- has but obviously yeah it's about training the senses and with all the lockdowns they were not able to do as much as they wanted last year unfortunately yeah but more conversations are coming up as soon as it's possible again to record podcasts and to have these uh, cultural projects at Maras so uh, yeah Let's wait and see when we can start living again. Hopefully, <laughs> Hopefully. soon. So this is the podcast from uh, Mares. And for the whole episode, check the SoundCloud of Student Radio Maastricht. I'm Valentin Beifunk. I'm director of Mares, which is a center for contemporary art in Maastricht. And we have a program on the census, part of which is not only a whole series of exhibitions, but also a series of training the census, where we explore with all kinds of speakers and signs, but also with artists, with musicians, what it means actually to train the senses. We all have a lot of sensory behavior and a lot of sensory perception, but we always feel like it's something natural that's untrainable. And on these nights already for five years, we train those senses. Hello, my name is Maribel Ortega. I come originally from the Dominican Republic. I'm based in Munich for the past uh, 20 years. I have a coaching practice and I help professional women find their voice, work with their body language so that they create the impact in their profession that they are looking for so that they ultimately lived, uh, live fulfilled lives. I'm Katinka van Kan. I'm from Maastricht, a part of the student radio Maastricht. That's also I'm here in the conversation. We are very interested in the topic of social distancing because um, it has has had a lot of influence on uh, yeah, the student life here in Maastricht as well. So I'm very excited to be a part of this conversation and yeah, curious about what we're going to learn today. But let's first talk about the, the topic, social distancing. Very pertinent at this moment. Um, Absolutely. But maybe you've been dealing already with it before the corona time, so maybe there's another practice you can bring to it. 
Well, yes, the, the idea was to combine what we're experiencing now because of this yes. pandemic this year, um, something that is strange to human nature, and that is social distancing, especially because it's imposed on us and, and, and not chosen, and connect that with body language and the way we usually use our body language and how that has changed because of the imposed social distancing that, that we need to follow. What is lacking in communication, interpersonal communication, and whether new things are there, other things that uh, are arising because of that. We, we get there in a little bit, but maybe good to say something about what you do in regular life. You're a coach, you're, yes. a, you're a body person, you, you do a lot of things that actually qualify you to do everything that has to do with this distancing, right? Or rather the opposite. Uh, well, I would say more more in that direction. My regular job or, or what I do in my business, I have a coaching practice, business coaching, and I specialize specifically with empowering and increasing the confidence of professional women who, because of a long story of misogyny or having had to fight for their rights, it's kind of like ingrained in their brains that they can't speak up, that, that it's not okay, that they have to be this good girl. So many of the things that we work uh, or I work with them is has to do with body language because a huge amount of communication, of the message of your communication, specifically 55% of the message when you communicate is through body language. And the way that I, what I do with my body, my gestures, my face, that has a huge impact in what I'm saying. Not only the words and not only the intonation, that's, that's of course important, but it's not the most important. They always say 10% of what you say is important, right? And the other 90% is what the body does and what happens in between people, right? Exactly, exactly. There's even one, one TED talk of um, a, a really interesting uh, experiment of a guy who basically says nothing. During those 15, 20 minutes, he just continuously say, so I'm here and I'm going to give you the impression that I'm saying something something intelligent and important and then I'm gonna go like this and show you this, this image and whatever and it looks if you if you look at it without the sound it looks like wow that guy he has presence he knows what he's talking about and if you turn on the sound it's just yeah BS <laughs> you know and he did that on purpose to show how important yeah. body language that's, right. oh, that's yeah, really yeah. smart and he smart. makes a point yeah. he makes his point yeah. give me give me an example of the women you have in your practice sort of what is what is it you teach specifically what what do you note in posture maybe or in gesture or in posture crossing the legs or holding holding their hands in between their knees that's exactly what i'm doing now what it, can you tell me what what does it mean 
it means that that you're closed. If, you're, if you cross your hands or if you cross your legs or you know like cross the hands and put them on on your on your stomach or in your chest, is just giving the impression. I really don't want to be here. I'm not open to your suggestions. Mm. And one of the most important things that changes, that makes a huge difference in how you're perceived is where your shoulders are. If they're like hanging like in, in front of you, like slumping, not good, not good. Because you have to, when you make yourself big and it's just really, very nice. You do very well. Wow, that was really fun to listen to. Um, so now it's the end of the show, and so we're going to close you out with a song by the unfortunately recently deceased uh, brilliant producer, Sophie. Um, we are all still mourning her, so we're going to end you out with the song, It's Okay to Cry. I don't mean to approach you by saying this I know that scares you I would 